every day there's $30 million of new buying pressure coming into the market to support this price. Can $30 million a day enter this market? Because if it can't, then the market will keep going down until it finds a number that it can support. Hello, Russell. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to hear what's going on in your world because I actually secretly came on this podcast to extract <laughs> information because I know that you're a genius. Oh, so. well, we'll see. I think Paris has made me a little degenerate. And uh, yeah, so for uh, everybody back home, uh, I know I'm going to get the comments about, oh, the sound's not as good anymore and the video quality's not as good. I'm traveling. This is not my house. So uh, you have to apologize the week set up for the next two weeks. Um, while I'm here for the Ethereum conference, which has been a blast. Hey everyone, quick BlockWorks related announcement. But from August 11th to August 13th of this year, BlockWorks is hosting its Bretton Woods The Realignment event at the historic Bretton Woods location in New Hampshire. It's going to be a macro-focused event filled with the best macroeconomists, investors, and macroanalysts talking about the future of finance. Uh, so if you want to attend and you know get your tickets at a discounted price, click the link in the description or use the code inflated at checkout. I hope to see you there. The Delta variant of COVID has been a very popular topic lately, obviously, because it's sort of taking over everything. Um, mm -hmm. And coming out of, you know, what we thought was a recovery from this first COVID strain, how do you see this potentially affecting financial markets in the short to long term if the Delta variant actually does spur like more lockdowns and closures? Amazing question. And I... I've been looking at this a lot and thinking about it a lot, as I hope all people are, because especially looking at what happened in March of last year, 2020, when everything seized up and we weren't prepared, there was a lot of initial panic in the markets and we saw everything crash. We saw Bitcoin correlated to that crash and overall liquidity just dried up. Now, not only do we have significant liquidity in the market from the Fed, we also have already gone through this experience before. We know what to expect. We know that the world isn't ending. Uh, maybe we have a better understanding of what the workforce looks like. And honestly, we still haven't really recovered uh, workforce or labor-wise from the original crash. I'd like to take the stance that a lot of the things that we're being fed are very hyperbolized and not necessarily the full truth. And I wouldn't take any hard stance saying like, this is for sure going to happen at this point. A lot of what we're doing at Tantra and positioning is about being patient and seeing what is going to happen and reacting as it's happening. Because the same thing, like you might've said, the economy is shutting down. So everything's going to go to zero. And then the Fed starts printing money like it's never printed money before. And a year later, we're up 100% in the stock market and everything's at all time highs. There's insane amounts of money being pumped into this economy. So to, to bet against it seems very much the wrong move at this point when the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve is backing this economy. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily be all in going into the Delta variant. Um, a lot of what we look at, though, is the amount of money it takes to sustain this economy and this upside pressure, the level at which mm, 
I refer to it as money printing, but it's really the wrong way. I, I think that's kind of like a, it's a misnomer, but I like to use it. But the whole point is like, as long as they have their finger on the trigger, as long as they're printing money, as long as they're backstopping the market, the market doesn't have a reason to go down 50, 60% like it did in March of 2020. If So regardless of the Delta variant, like, the Federal Reserve backstopping this economy, in my opinion, keeps us from ever experiencing what happened in March of 2020. Now, Delta variant comes out, the Fed cuts, and everybody's earnings start dropping, then we're in a whole other paradigm. Yeah, I think those are a lot of really good points, especially within the United States, which seems to still be pretty laxed about the Delta variant uh, as of right mm -hmm. now. But in places like France, where the president just came out and said that, uh, you know, you're going to be required to have a vaccine card if you go to cafes. Yeah. Uh, you can, uh, they said like a punishable up to six months in jail. There's fines. And there's going to be like a lot of restrictions, not necessarily lockdown, but encouraging this like push to vaccination. And like, you know, we have the potential for boosters and this, that, the other. Do you think that this is just going to reflect like a greater trend in distrust to government? And do you think that'll create like that dispersion where people maybe look towards decentralized everything while other people look towards government everything? That's a really interesting question. I, I think the, to frame it in the way that like um, I look at it from like my own life philosophy, I think the more that regulation happens, the, the more you're going to get uh, what's the right word? Polarized. The more polarization that will happen. It, it's not so much that like everyone's going to go one direction or the other at this point in the paradigm. Like at this point, it's like you're either for or against the government. And then the more regulation and the more like down our throats they get, the more polarization that you'll see happen, right? The more people that are like super for the vaccine and like, fuck you, you're an asshole if you don't get it. And then the more people that are like, you're a sheep and the government's controlling you if you do get it. And I do think there's a healthy middle ground of people that understand that. But the majority of people are kind of just going into a polarized camp and identifying with it. The same way that we see people in sports teams and politics and all of these where like, they pick a side, they're red or they're blue, they're whatever it is at this point in time the polarization is causing uh, i think a false positive in the truth which to me on a 10-year time horizon the truth is we go decentralized because the internet isn't run by a government the internet is run by the people the same way that money should be run by the people the same way that technology is built by people why would we as a civilization answer to one higher power when we could all do something fairly and openly? And that was one of the great things I loved hearing in the talk yesterday. Something Elon Musk said that I've always subscribed to is governments have a monopoly on violence. And I believe as human beings, it's our job to demolish that monopoly. And decentralization, especially of finance, allows us to do that. So I believe like it's in our best interest as a civilization to push towards 
decentralization of finance. And so I would hope I live in a world where that happens. Yeah, I think that's a really it's a really good perspective. And I when you said like government runs a monopoly on violence, I think that's super interesting that that was even brought up because Mm -hmm. I come from George Mason, a pretty Austrian school. Uh, Walter Williams, before he passed, I had the honor of being one of his students and taking uh, courses for my foundation classes in the Ph.D. program. And, um, you know, I had classes with his students and um, he he preached on the fact that government has a monopoly on violence. And he had this incredible like lecture where it was like the introduction to micro where he talks about, well, technically, you know, you don't have to pay your taxes. There's, you know, there's no and it was but it was this beautiful thing where he was like, you know, there's not there's no force. Right. Other than the fact that government has a monopoly on violence because you can buy a gun to defend yourself and you can you know do this, you can do that. But the government's going to come and they're going to, you know, take your car and take your house and take your gun or they'll kill you in the process. And. That mm-hmm. is why government has power. And, and coming from an Austrian school, you know, <laughs> you sort of <laughs> learn, you know, the, the root evil of government is like such a big focus in um, lots yeah. of libertarian Austrian sort of circles. So it's just very interesting to see those concepts appear in, in crypto spaces. Yeah, well, I, crypto attracts a lot of an- anarchists, which is what, also why I talk about like the polarization of it. It's an interesting concept because when you look like as a civilization, we've needed governments. Like we've, we needed someone to rule us because for the most part, you existed in a paradigm where most people couldn't read, they couldn't write. Like we were really fucked up as a civilization. Most people, especially in the lower tier that are just struggling to survive, those people that, you know, we refer to them as the 99%. We've always been the 99%. We have always kind of been... Uh, unruly, so to speak, where you wouldn't want to go outside at night even a thousand years ago because it wasn't safe. And so we've always needed someone to keep the peace, someone that you would, you know, I would tell on you to them so that you would go in jail and they would take care of it. And not to say that we're moving to a world that doesn't need those things, but now because of social justice and because of the fact that everything is recorded because the internet has almost become a governance agency in its own right by you know canceling people or shaming things like we are in a way building a one world government and it's a social construct because at the end of the day all of these things money included are just social constructs they're things that you and I agree on that give it value. And we have given the government value because we gave Kings value because we gave the police value because we needed them to survive. But in a world where we can truly interact with each other in real time and transfer energy in real time. And as an individual, you can actually have every single thing that you need to live and operate in the world it's hard to imagine why you need a very large government. And we also see this, like you can see it with a government balance sheet. Like we don't need, sorry, not that we don't need large governments fail because inherently they are just, it's too large of a structure you need. And this is why in the United States, you know, we have counties, we have States and we have governors at each level and we have mayors because you need local government or else the whole thing fails. And so 
I, I honestly think that the only way, like, or the, the way for human civilization, civilization to evolve is the smaller governments. And we're seeing it in crypto. You see it with the DAOs. Like when a new project comes out and the community is what's voting on what's being built for the project. Like that is very much the government structure of the future that you would live in a community where everyone in the community in real time can vote and can do things. And there's a lot of really amazing projects that are building stuff like this that are pushing forward the envelope of a DAO in a community. And I think the closer we get to tying those things into the real world, the more successful crypto becomes. Because right now, honestly, crypto is just a bunch of degenerates making finance cooler. So, you know, hopefully in the future we do more and more real world things outside of just finance. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point, too, because a lot of people in the crypto community want to say, like, oh, we don't need government. So why do we have it? Why do we why do we trust it? Like, we're all just trusting it for no reason when the truth of the matter is we have needed government to some extent for yeah. a really long time. And it's, you know, perhaps breached the sort of boundaries of its power. <laughs> um, yeah. But people also like to talk about how things are going up only forever. And obviously things have been going uh, anything but up only <laughs> the past couple of weeks. <laughs> and um, I know you have a Medium post about it called uh, The Two Main Causes of the Bitcoin 2021 Crash. And you talk about uh, leverage trading in the crypto feedback loop. And so I, I did a brief introduction to the podcast and to you off camera or well on camera, but <laughs> when you were in here. Um, but maybe just if you wanted to give a bit more background um, to help people understand at home, you know, explain uh, your perspective on this and then sort of go into that that narrative that you wrote about. Absolutely. So I'll just I'll kind of do an intro to the article because the the whole idea was like, you know, everybody has these models. We've seen plan B. We've seen $100,000 plus Bitcoin. We know about the halving. Um, if you don't, I recommend looking up all of them because they're super informative and amazing. And the basis of the idea is Bitcoin as programmable money, as an Austrian economic device in a Keynesian economic model or environment will go up and we can model how it will go up and how much it will go up based on supply and demand. And this time around, that model, it, it didn't break, but it very, it, it went faster than usual. It, it went very, very quick. It went exponential almost to its value. And at Tantra, we were trying to understand why. And when I did more research and I looked into it, it had to do with this idea of reflexivity and basically a leverage feedback loop where in crypto for the first time we had access to tremendous amounts of leverage, which, which leads to more honest price discovery. But at the same time, if everyone is on one side, and if everyone is borrowing against that side, it can be extremely volatile. And I want to use the word paper trading, but it's the wrong word. The value created isn't real because the money in the system is not real money. Because what happened and what we basically looked at was, imagine if you have $100 worth of something and it's... Um, here, I want to I want to use the analogy that I used before. So it's like you and I both own one stock in a company worth a million dollars. And this company has honestly it only has two stocks in total. It's you and me. So 
if I can borrow money against the stock that I hold and purchase the stock from you or a part of that stock, I can cause the value of the stock to go up. And you can cause it by not being willing to sell to me. So in essence, you're creating more value than truly exists because you never took money out of that stock to begin with when you did the borrow. You created money out of thin air and then artificially pushed the price of that stock up by, again, creating money out of thin air by borrowing. And so the credit-based system, even though it's a collateralized credit, causes what we call a reflexive feedback loop where I can borrow money, purchase, have more money to borrow against, and then purchase again. And this market basically got into that loop. It got into a, I'm borrowing, buying, the price goes up, so I borrow more, buy more, and we ended up getting extremely leveraged and extremely, you know, as a, as a trader, you would call it overbought or into a territory where the values didn't make sense anymore, where we're just borrowing way too much versus the actual value of this asset or this product. And now I'm not saying Bitcoin isn't worth, you know, $60,000. Honestly, to me, Bitcoin is worth infinite amounts as we move into authoritarian regimes and worlds where, you know, the government is trying to create central currencies. And the moral of the story, though, is that when we create credit and we borrow, it creates a very volatile and dangerous market for people that don't understand reflexivity because it is a very violent unwind. And that's what we watched happen where the people that borrowed and bought and borrowed and bought and caused the price to run up now have to sell and unwind and get liquidated. One of the biggest things we saw in the crash, and um, so we do a lot of derivatives trading, and on BitMEX in particular, there was a single one-minute candle where the price went down 10%. In about five seconds, the price went down 10% and was immediately back up. And so that's all liquidations on people borrowing money that doesn't really exist. And you can argue that this is good or bad. I would argue that it's neutral. Um, the point is, is you just have to be aware of it. You have to be aware that when we can borrow money and inflate prices the same way the Federal Reserve is doing it today, things go up very quickly and they will come down even faster. And yeah, that was what the whole article was about. I, you can you can honestly see it everywhere in the economy today. It's not just crypto. Crypto just likes to operate much faster than everything else. Yeah, so the laws of gravity. I think, um, what did uh, Powell come out and say something about the laws of gravity today? I thought I'd seen something in one of his talks where he was like, the laws of gravity are still uh, still in place or they, they, they still have not been overturned. It was this weird ominous thing, or maybe it was thermodynamics, but it was some weird ominous thing where everyone was like, what, what are you hinting at? <laughs> but no, I think that's a, it's a great point because uh, I think a lot of people, especially those just coming into crypto, didn't really understand why we were seeing all of this price movement when you know there was mm -hmm. initially so much excitement and so much so much upward movement. Um, but in the long run, I think you're similar to I and many others who you know are I guess I hate using this term because it's such a gross connotation in the game, like bullish long run. Um, yeah. You know. 
in it for the technology. Um, but <laughs> That's my you know, I, yeah, right. the Indian man with the gold Bitcoin on him, <laughs> all, in all gold, and it says, "I'm in it for the technology." It's, it's great. I mean, it's 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 one of the best ones there. But, you know, what is your like long term sort of case for that? And, you know, I think you and I have talked a lot about wealth inequality and how Bitcoin can solve that and sort of these other components that actually do drive up the true value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Hmm. Well, I'll I'll make an interesting statement. I think that Bitcoin can solve wealth inequality, but I don't think that it does soon. I think that Austrian economics can solve wealth inequality, but the shift of wealth from the current model to that model, I don't think will, it will leave a lot more people in the dust and cause a lot more pain in the short term than it will solve problems in the long term. And and that's a whole other conversation. That's the same idea of like raising, raising minimum wage and all of a sudden there's a different problem that needs to be solved versus, but much longer conversation. Um, my, uh, I'm a bull when it comes to crypto. Like I said earlier, we have to decentralize finance. If we don't, we effectively fail as a species and as a civilization because you're leaving the power in the hands of people that have literally fucked us for centuries and we have them like on tape fucking us in courtrooms and admitting to it in 2008, 2009. And that was the whole point of Bitcoin to begin with was like the hedge funds and central banks and all of them literally on record admitted to fucking us. And um, there's a really good documentary called Inside Job that I recommend for everybody. And in it, you're basically, you're seeing the deposition of one of the CEOs that went under and went bankrupt and lost everybody's money. And the judge is basically asking him this question. He says, uh, do you believe what you did was wrong? And the guy says, what I did was wrong was not, what I did was not illegal. That's his response. The judge says, do you think what you did was wrong? And he says, what I did was not illegal. Because they don't give a fuck about right or wrong. He was looking at it like I'm making money and who I'm stealing it from or taking it. I don't care. It's not illegal. And those people should not be allowed to pull the strings. Currently, they're pulling the strings. And the only way to solve that is through decentralized finance. So long term, super bullish, this entire space. Um, and then I'll give you a, a 40 year play on Bitcoin that I uh, a man named Nick Batia wrote a really amazing book called Layered Money. And um, we, he talks a lot about how Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency of the world. And through that thought experiment, I've always looked at. So if we look at like China's goals and even the United States goal, we want the dollar to be the reserve currency the same way that China would want the RMB to be the reserve currency of the world. There's a ton of value in the world settling in your currency. You control everything from a financial aspect. Like in every sense of the word, we are currently in a cold war, in a financial war with the entire world and everyone is fighting for power. So in that world, will the United States ever be like, yeah, guys, let's use Bitcoin instead of the dollar. Fuck no. But would the United Nations say something like the United States has too much power? We need to delegate the financial power somewhere else. 
maybe. Would they opt for one of the countries within the United Nations to do it? Probably not because the incentives aren't aligned. So they would need to choose a neutral third party, which currently the most optimal one today is Bitcoin. And so in a multi-decade thought experiment, I could totally see that happening. Whether it does or not, I still think Bitcoin ends up at tens of trillions of dollars in market cap because the internet is choosing it today. And that's the, the power of the internet and the power of people is becoming more and more known to us because now we can all go online and we can purchase this. And as much as China just stopped all their citizens, nobody else is really being stopped. And I think that even China, will, those people will find a way around it eventually because nobody wants to be controlled like that. Yeah, I think that's, that. yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And um, something that I had like researched a lot and looked into a lot was this sort of financial Cold War and this changing dynamic. I remember talking to some people in D.C. once, some policy people about how like war is changed. Like We're not, you know, as humanity evolves, everything else we do evolves. And like we're no mm -hmm. longer, you know, being brutal on the battlefields, it's where, where they can really punch us where it hurts is within the financial systems, within the economy. COVID, and I'm not saying COVID was weaponized, but COVID was proof that one external event could have lasting, could wreck an economy, could wreck global supply chains, yeah. because we are all dependent on each other and we live in a globalized world. And when we live in a globalized world, but we still have independent financial systems trying to control things all over the board, I think it really complicates things and it makes for a lot of rigidities. And that's why today we're still seeing so many issues from travel yep. to reopenings to employment not being back to what it was to financial markets just being a mess in general. Um, yeah. And again, Nick Batia's Layered Money is a really good book. I think everybody should, should probably um, read that. Um, yeah. But going... I, I'm not even... I just want to comment on that because I'm not normally a history buff, but especially if you're into crypto, he breaks down like how central bank, how the central bank came into be, sorry, how the central bank came to be and the power that they grasped once they realized that they could, because human nature is inherently greedy. And so these people and the men really took control and got greedy and they realized like we can pull the strings and we can make more money and they did and they're still doing it today and nothing has changed. It's just that they're doing it in a different way. And now as people, we finally have the ability to opt out and that's where crypto wins because we can opt out of that system. Yeah, it's, so this is actually something when I lectured yesterday at the, and I call it a lecture because if you watch the video, it was a lecture. <laughs> um, but I talked a bit about how the Fed came to be and how it originally wasn't even supposed to be a central monetary authority. It wasn't even really supposed to be a central bank. And now we have mm -hmm. the Fed doing things way outside of its lane, um, yeah. like, you know, paying bank, commercial banks to, uh, to not lend out to people when they raise the interest rates in order to not inflate the economy. And I think something that I kept hitting on yesterday was that it's not enough to say that Bitcoin could be like the gold standard, right? Because we tried the gold standard. What's very clear in this growing, <laughs> changing environment is that we need the entire system to be different. And it, it yeah. can't just be like, oh, because that's the thing about human nature is that it's not exempt from government, right? Because governments are made yeah. up of humans. And so 
you know, we can say, oh, well, here you go. We're going to have a Bitcoin standard and, you know, you're going to tether your dollar to the to, you know, the value of Bitcoin. And, well, look, if you're holding it in your reserves, oh, you can't you can't, you know, liquidate anything. You can't spend more than you than you make. But they're not actually going to do that. You know, after World War One was proof of that with Germany having to liquidate all of their gold reserves and, you know, not being able to go back to the gold standard. And so it's just this cycle where it's like I think people are finally starting to wake up and realize no, 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 it's not just a piece of the system. It's everything that needs to change. Yeah, well, and that's the whole Austrian versus Keynesian mm-hmm. economic theory, right? And I, I was, it's really hard to like comprehend, I think, being raised in a society where we price things in dollars and the dollars inflating. And so I was trying to go through the thought experiment yesterday, actually, of like, okay, what if a house was priced in Bitcoin and or like the whole world was priced in Bitcoin? Could you imagine a world where your house is worth one Bitcoin and 10 years later, it's still worth one Bitcoin? And that's that's the beauty of the Austrian economic model, because eventually the price becomes much more stable versus the environment that we live in today, where Three years ago, your house was worth 100. Now it's worth 180. And you're still making $50,000 a year. And so is the guy living next to you. But in a world where everything is static as far as the unit of value transfer is concerned, it becomes much easier for us to transfer and understand value and also hold on to that value. And that's ultimately the issue in the Keynesian economic model is that we are literally extracting value from the lower class and we are stealing from people. Like the entire society today is built on a model that is stealing from people that cannot escape the model because they don't have a way to escape. And it's not, it's not inflation. I'll use the word inflation, but they don't have a way to escape the, their buying power being reduced. And, and that's just what it comes down to. We, we do not have a model in place today that keeps people's buying power from being taken from them. And we actually very much live in a society today where buying power is being lost faster than almost any other point in history in one of the nations that the world considers the greatest, which is terrifying. And it, it should terrify everyone, honestly. Yeah, I think that More is a really good point. And I think a lot, of, yeah, right? I think a lot of people worry too because they're like, oh, well, you know, if the price of my house isn't going, that's, you know, that's an asset that has a lot of, of value or whatever, when in reality it's just the creation of so many bubbles. Like how many times has the housing market been in a bubble? It, we're headed for another one. Um, and yeah. it's all because, you know, and it's very Austrian sentiment. Um, something I've tried to explain a lot is that everything is artificial right now. The interest rate, mm-hmm. the rate of inflation, there's no such thing as a real rate. Because mm-hmm. we have the Fed, the government, toying with uh, supply, demand, and distorting real price mechanisms. So in a world where the Fed can't use perfect foresight to predict what's going to happen tomorrow, but is making decisions today based on yesterday, nothing is real. Like, it's all very, very yeah. artificial. So I think moving forward, it's like what I always tell people is that, you know, with, with Bitcoin or, you know, cryptocurrencies in general not having a, a mechanism in place, like having a true sound money that can't be altered by an outside entity allows for natural um, phenomenon, natural sort of changes to actually occur. 
because nobody's mm-hmm. messing with it. It's just a reflection of what's actually happening in the markets and what's actually happening in the uh, economy. So, yep. no, um, that you could almost think of housing is an Austrian currency. Like property in and of itself is, it is a scarce thing that we cannot create more of. And so in essence, if you look at like the value of real estate over the you know centuries and you can see what happens to an Austrian economic model in a Keynesian economic world. And if you just tie the value of real estate to Bitcoin, and then I don't know how you don't buy Bitcoin at that point. I, I know plenty of people that made fortunes in real estate that are, they look at Bitcoin and they go, holy shit, I need this because they, they get it. it. When you have property, especially digital property, that also can't be taken from you, right? Like your property can be taken from you by the government. You actually don't even really like own it, which goes back to the whole monopoly on violence thing. This is the first thing that like you can truly own if you want to. And the the idea of the Austrian economic model, I think that it's something that ideally we could see it in our lifetime, but I don't see that happening anytime soon because it's not it's not an easy concept to understand and you're also talking about people giving up power which they don't want to do like like i said earlier in the analogy like do you think the united states government is going to give up control over the dollar and the world economy hell no <laughs> why would they do that there there's no incentive for them to do that and so the only way that I think you get to that point is either it's a global crisis, like truly something horrible happens, whether it's the economy exploding again and we go into a recession, we go into a war, or I don't know, we get someone smart as a president, which again, I don't know that that'll ever happen. But it's just not gonna, it's not gonna change because there's no incentive for them to change it. They don't profit off of it. And I really, I enjoyed what Elon said yesterday. I know a lot of people in crypto are against him, but the man is extremely smart when he says, not only does the government have a monopoly on violence, but the government is just a corporation. Like they're just another business trying to make money. And their way of valuing that is, you know, citizens and land, but they have no incentive to adopt something, especially um, especially the United States and China specifically. Maybe, you know, we see El Salvador do it. We see these other countries do it. But at this point in the paradigm, they have no incentive to adopt something like this. Actually, they have more incentive and we're seeing it with China to regulate it and try and get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about governments is that they want to use anything as you know a vehicle for their own monopolies but when mm-hmm. they can't the only thing that they can do is is ban it in order yep. to you know suppress the cause and i think what you're talking about with with elon and a lot of people in the community you know are not so fond of him you know and for good reason i mean he's kind of a troll on twitter and you know he's, he's yeah, a lot of noise people, a lot of money pumping Dogecoin. yeah <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> But, you know, so yesterday's event, um, the B word for anybody who, who didn't know, with, it was with Kathy Wood, Jack, 
CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, and Elon Musk. What were your like biggest takeaways from that, I guess, summarized? Just what you thought was the most important sort of stuff. Kathy Wood is a boss, lover, <laughs> absolutely just lover to death. Um, Jack Dorsey is, he has a really good heart and like you can tell that he wants to do what's best. And Elon is doing his best to do what he thinks is right. And I, I think that for him at his I'll talk about Elon the most because I think for the most part everybody loves Jack and, and Kathy. In the world that Elon exists in, he is doing his best to not persuade people to follow him. And I, when I saw him pumping Dogecoin and when I see him talk about it, he's trolling. Like he is legitimately the same reason that Doge was created as a meme against crypto. The entire purpose of him talking about it and pushing it and everything he even says about it, he's talking about it in the sense of irony and how ironic it would be for this to be successful because it's so against the ethos of everything. If you listen carefully to what he says on the call, he talks about how Bitcoin is his biggest holding. Because as it sits right now, it is the clear winner and it accomplishes all the goals that anyone trying to create a new financial system would want to create. When you look at a transaction layer and like building things, okay, layer one Bitcoin isn't good, layer zero Bitcoin isn't good, but that's what we have lightning for. And they talk about that a lot. I think having three of some of the most powerful and, and influential tech people talking about Bitcoin and how they believe in it, people that were at the beginning of the internet, that saw the beginning of the internet, that created companies at the beginning of the internet, talking about how Bitcoin is the future of the internet of finance, Elon included, no one should be sleeping on it and no one should be selling Bitcoin after listening to a talk like that. If you're selling it for short-term profit because you're a day trader, great. I hope you make a lot of money. But if you're not, you should just be DCAing this thing because we're, when people, the people who literally saw the future of the internet and invested in it and built on it are talking about how this is the future of the internet of finance. I don't know how you don't just attribute so much weight to it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It was a really powerful, um, I guess, online conference. <laughs> um, yeah. But also, so before, you know, they all got together, I don't know how or how much you keep up with the, you know, the Bitcoin energy debate. A few weeks ago, I had Nick Carter on, who's, you know, our staple Bitcoin energy boy, who likes to talk yeah. about, you know, <laughs> everything related to, to Bitcoin and energy fund. And um, I think it's interesting because you and I both have a similar perspective on, you know, Bitcoin, you know, helping with wealth inequality and creating a new free financial system. And a lot of times I get flack or, and I know Nick gets the most of it um, because, you know, a lot of people not familiar with Bitcoin see it as this horrible energy waste. Um, yeah. So I guess how do, how do those things fit like hand in hand with you with like, you know, it is this great thing and yes, it uses energy. And I know Elon Musk has um, yeah. talked about it and, and whatnot, but um, is this Bitcoin energy issue even really an issue to you? Or do you think that this, like, like Jack has said that, um, 
he, he came out and said once, you know, like it could help uh, accelerate the speed of renewable energy. I, and so I'm not sure. If I you're think about familiar. it in, in one way. And I love Nick Carter's takes and he's way more qualified than me. So I, I think of it very simply. What is the value of something that can free people from financial oppression? If if the answer to that isn't infinite, then who gives a fuck? If it takes twice as much energy as the old financial system, but it frees people from their oppressors, who's why are we complaining? Like it. So when you look at it from that lens, then I don't. I could care less. Uh, maybe if it spent ten times the energy, then we should all still be slaves to the financial system. But um, that's not the case. So with the lens of like green energy on, I think you're you're looking at um, it's like risk reward modeling, right? So if we say green energy is cheaper and more efficient in the long run. And then I have a way to directly convert energy into value, then Bitcoin in and of itself is an extremely beneficial thing for green energy and pushes green energy forward. Because if I can get energy cheaply, and it's funny, like Elon Musk yesterday was kind of more like a sales pitch for Tesla. He's very much like pitching Tesla and everything they do, which was really, really funny. Um, but the point is, like, if green energy becomes cheaper and it's very much on the way to being that and already is that, then Bitcoin actually causes the adoption of green energy to happen much faster. And it allows us to better utilize that energy. So uh, most of the people that spew information like that, are, they normally you know, are just regurgitating something they heard from someone else who's doing the exact same thing. Like um, most of the time, these people, it's like, not to call Peter Schiff out, because honestly, I have a I have a thought that I'll say after this. But like Peter Schiff is an example. Like you can talk shit about Bitcoin all day long, but show me that you're short Bitcoin. Like if you really fucking believe this thing's going to zero and the seam to lab too, I hope you're fucking short. Like you better have a million dollars saying this thing's going down or some significant portion of your net worth. If you're willing to go out and like attack it and say it's going to zero, but you're not willing to put your money on the line saying it, you can fuck off because it, it, there's no there's no value in your words if you're not willing to get behind it. So and my thing with Peter Schiff, no. So, you know, Spencer Schiff, massive Bitcoin bull. And they talk all the time, Peter and Spencer, and they have like a drama that goes on. I think that Peter is a Bitcoin bull. And he's doing it through his son and he's trying to appeal to two different demographics by like getting the people that are very against it as his investors and the people that are very for it as his sons. So if he's wrong, then his son lives on and is able to become a great investor because he called Bitcoin early. And if he's right, then he gets to keep being a great investor because he called Bitcoin being worthless. So I think he's a genius and he's playing both sides of the coin. I, I, you know what, I sort of agree with you there because I had actually tweeted something about um, their interesting dynamic, this father-son dynamic that they have on Twitter, Spencer and Peter. Um, and a lot like of people were like, show. 
Yeah, right. Everyone was like, it's a marketing. It's clearly a marketing tactic. And I was like, let me have my joke. Yeah. But yes, it does seem <laughs> to, to be a clear marketing tactic. And if so, then I take back anything negative I've ever said about Peter Schiff. And he is one of the <laughs> people that I know. <laughs> but on the term of, of maybe not so smart people, there's a lot of bad math going around. And you and I talked about this yes. just before. Um, I see a lot of the bad math in terms of inflation, which Part of my presentation mm -hmm. yesterday, I taught people how to calculate inflation because I was Love so it. tired of seeing terrible calculations for inflation. But there's also a lot of interesting bad math for Bitcoin, Ethereum in general. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk about like your the way that you look at, you know, long term potential of cryptocurrencies and sort of maybe some of these misconceptions like of uh, yeah. financial calculations that a lot of people seem to fall into. Absolutely. So I, what, what I like to do first for everyone in crypto, because as we know, in the bull market, everybody comes to you and says, should I buy now? Should I wait? The, you know, and then everybody buys 60K and sells 30K. But um, it's, it's tough out there. So the one thing that I always say to people is to me, Bitcoin is worth what gold is worth. So gold today has a five or sorry, a $10 trillion market cap, roughly all the gold in the world. And so when, and I can break down why Bitcoin's worth what gold is worth, but I, I think everyone listening to this is probably of a similar thought process. So if Bitcoin is at least worth gold and gold is worth 10 trillion, that puts Bitcoin's market cap roughly around $500,000 a coin. And when you can purchase something for 30,000 that to me the value is 500 then even at 60,000 it's a great deal even at $100,000 it's a great deal and for me to be right i just have to have a 10 year time horizon and be convicted see i think a lot of people lack conviction and so they see the value of it go down and they think that they're wrong and china banned it so obviously it's bad you know, China banning Bitcoin to me, and it, they didn't necessarily ban Bitcoin, so it's a whole other story. But them banning it is the greatest thing that could happen to Bitcoin, period. You're literally seeing an authoritarian regime ban what is potentially the next greatest financial innovation in the world that could overthrow their monopoly on power. For them to ban it means that they see it as a threat. Now, that's not why they banned it publicly. But the the point is, is that any authoritarian regime that openly opposes Bitcoin is literally proving the value of Bitcoin. It's proving that this is something that's necessary and needed, and it's doing exactly what it set out to do. So when China bans it, you should be all in like, holy shit, this is real. It's happening. We're going. <laughs> um, granted, the buying power or the buying pressure dried up by 50% and then we corrected 50. So if you're valuing in dollars, then obviously it was a terrible buy. But I don't know, 10 years out, I think it's easily worth what gold is worth, which makes it worth, sorry, uh, half a million dollars. The bad math that I see all the time is people thinking that that will happen very quickly. Um, and I'll talk about this from a trading perspective. So at Tantra, we do quantitative analysis and algorithmic trading. So a lot of what we do is like volatility modeling. And so 
something that you can very easily see in the price with implied volatility, which is the amount of movement in the price that you get on like a daily basis or annualized. Um, basically the market's expectation of something to go up. We would say like if implied volatility is 50%, then we believe the asset will move 50% over the course of the next year. Whether that's up or down, it's just saying it'll move 50%. And so when implied vol spikes, you tend to have, or sorry, the cause of a vol spike is normally large price movement. It's like the price falling from 60K to 40K, implied volatility went from 60 to 250%. So we went from thinking Bitcoin's gonna move 60% to 250% in a year because the price went down 50% in a month. And so numbers, 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 the, the point is that when we look at implied volatility, Volatility spikes when the price goes down, but it actually gets lower as the price goes up. And this is the market's way of telling you that as the market cap of an asset grows, the likelihood of it growing exponentially or growing another 100% becomes less and less likely. So when we're at 60,000 and you're thinking it's going to go to 500,000 this year, you're betting against the market. The market is not saying that. The market is saying this thing is going to 80,000 this year or 90,000. The market is normally right. A lot of smart people play the market and are a part of the market. Uh, historically speaking, actually selling volatility is the most profitable trade in history because you're betting with the market. You're, you're saying that like, uh, let's put it this way. When you're betting against implied vol, you're saying the market is wrong. So you have to have some kind of edge or information, whether it's Bitcoin, uh, whether it's Elon wearing a Bitcoin shirt on the Bitcoin talk and talking about how he loves Bitcoin. And so you're, you're saying the market's wrong for it being priced at 29,000. And so it goes up to 32. That's some kind of an edge, right? And ultimately, the higher up in market cap we go, the harder it is to move the needle, the more dollars it takes to push the price higher. Um, the easiest math to look at is actually the price of Bitcoin multiplied by the emission rate. So every day, 900 new Bitcoins come into the market and Bitcoin is priced at $30,000. So we'll use round numbers and say that there's a thousand Bitcoin coming in every day. It's basically $30 million a day Every day there's $30 million of new buying pressure coming into the market to support this price. And now that's irregardless of anyone else selling or buying. So the point is, is can $30 million a day enter this market? Because if it can't, then the market will keep going down until it finds a number that it can support. So is $30 million a day reasonable? Absolutely. It's actually an extremely small number on a global scale. Is it hard to have $30 million a day when China bans it and Elon Musk says it's no good anymore? Kind of. So the market reacted to that. And can we see $300,000 Bitcoin? So $300 million a day entering the market? That's tough. Nine, it's nine billion a month entering Bitcoin. Maybe. 
I, does it sustain for years? Maybe. Does it happen for a few days? Maybe. Ultimately, like as the price grows exponentially, the buying pressure also needs to grow exponentially. Is it possible? Absolutely. I saw a stat today that I don't know if it's true, but it was like 10% of Americans hold gold, 17% hold Bitcoin. And they were like, are we still early? <laughs> What's the comment? Because <laughs> it's like the exponential growth. I mean, it's still there. Like you could go five times higher to get to 100% saturation. And maybe the 17% that own it are only 1% of the buying pressure of the uh, economy. But damn, that's not a... It's not a happy figure to see if you think the price is going to go up exponentially from here. Um, I very much subscribe to plan B and I, I'm very much in the camp of like, we're going to see another leg up in this market before we see a leg down, especially the way that macro is playing out right now in the stock market. Uh, something that we were looking at is like, we got the first trillion dollar company last year. That company is now worth 2.5 trillion. So obviously it's possible for exponential growth to happen. I mean, it's 150% in a year. So is it possible for Bitcoin to also go from a trillion to two to three trillion? Absolutely. Um, does it happen overnight? Definitely not. And it will get slower as we get closer to those numbers as per the market's opinion. Does that mean that we grow from 50 to 100K over the course of two weeks. Possibly, we went from 30K to 60K last time in like three weeks, I think. So the market can be wrong, but it tends to be right. So I would look out for implied vol in the way that the market is pricing uh, the potential for exponential growth, especially as we get to those frothy levels of price in this environment. Yeah, I think that's an incredible explanation. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't grasp because, if, you know, Bitcoin is this relatively new thing and there aren't as many, you know, easily to access resources on stuff like this because there is a lot of like, you know, oh, it's going to a million this year. It's going to 500,000 this year. And then there's people who are saying, yeah. oh, it's going to zero this year. So I think for a lot of people who maybe are coming to this podcast, like, you know, on the economic side, but interested in crypto, it's something that, you know, and my parents, like, that's something that a lot of people don't really understand. And it can be very yeah. easy to feel confused and overwhelmed by having a thousand different voices tell you a thousand different things, and then Bitcoin to just run mm -hmm. sideways for a few weeks. Um, yeah. But to wrap up, um, so El Salvador, and this is something I've been asking everybody, um, El Salvador accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. Super, super interesting. For me, I was hesitant to celebrate because I was like, it seems a little early, just like from the no, monetary also, history perspective. It <laughs> right. Uh, it's uh, it's happening in September, is it? With the article, I know there was a bunch of debate over Article 7 and, oh, <laughs> oh, <Yeah. laughs> puppy, <laughs> so cute. Oh my goodness, I wish I had mine. Um, oh, but no. with, you know, with it coming into, um, you know, potential use in El Salvador, um, a lot of people have been coming to me, you know, again, not people within the crypto community necessarily, but people outside the crypto community saying, well, couldn't this be bad for Bitcoin if it failed? And my, I always say no. Uh, I don't think El Salvador can destroy Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, maybe your thoughts on that, <laughs> sort of where this is headed. Is this good or the, bad the for Bitcoin? Of, the opinion of if the legal tender bill failed or like El Salvador failed? 
What failed? Um, like as in uh, El Salvador adopts it and it and somehow fails. And what like president Bitcoin sort fails. of sets? Yes, Bitcoin fails. And El Salvador uh, fails. <laughs> or like it drops, right? Like mm-hmm. like Bitcoin drops eighty percent after they adopt mm-hmm. it, and all their citizens become even more poor. Yeah, so I've heard um, I've heard narratives like that where people say, "Oh, well, what happens if it all goes to zero and now we've you know made it a lot worse?" Or what happens if it you know jumps up and then goes down and you know with all this volatility, blah blah blah. The one way that I was looking at it was like if their remittance is really twenty to thirty percent, so they have like a thirty percent tax on every transaction that they do. Like if that's true, then it doesn't matter if it fucking goes down ninety nine percent over the course of let's call it ten years, they're going to save money. Um, because if you're, if everything you do gets taxed at thirty percent, eventually you go to zero. Like that, that rate of taxation is so high that even with a eighty percent drop, you're you're making money over the course of let's call it four or five years. Um, if if the argument is all just like Bitcoin failing and what that does to El Salvador, then absolutely it's a gamble. Um, at the end of the day, nothing is certain. Like we don't know if Ethereum overtakes Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes obsolete. Like if you know for sure, then please contact me. I have a job for you. I'll pay you lots of money. If you know without beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can tell me what's going to happen. We're looking for a psychic here. (laughs) Yeah, please. Financial psychic, someone willing to use their occult powers to make money. Um, I can do tarot readings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can you do tarot readings on what Bitcoin will do in the next 10 minutes? We'll, we'll figure that out, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, Bitcoin, yeah, if Bitcoin fails, they're fucked. I, I, there's no, I don't, I don't think there's any, like, there's any way around that. I think for the most part, Bitcoin isn't being forced upon the citizens, though. It's, it's an option. It's not a... That was the article, uh, I don't want to get it wrong, I don't know if it's Article 7 or Article 14, but there was an article in the bill that sort of made it seem like it would be forced, which is why uh, a majority of like Austrian economists had come out and there was sort of a debate between like Nick Carter, George Seldrin, um, mm. about, you know, should we still be celebrating this? Because if it's going to be forced, is that really the sort of start to all of this? You know, is this really yeah. what we want decentralized finance to be when it's integrated into monetary regimes? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, I would have a, is it forced in the sense of making them pay taxes in it? Uh, They would be, I think, just forced to accept and forced to integrate. Oh, actually, I don't think that that would be bad because they could probably just swap into their currency from there. And then whatever, like lightning strike, probably other services. I mean, I would opt Tantra to even do something like this. You would just allow them to swap Bitcoin into their currency. Uh, that I mean, that's the whole beauty of it, right? Like the issue with remittance and like you go through it, like you just traveled to Paris. So you needed to get the local currency and you probably paid 10 to 20% to get it. Why the fuck did you pay that? That makes no sense. It didn't cost 10 to 20%. Like it's literally a transaction in a database that can just be done. So why are we paying 10 to 20%? So, um, yeah, I mean, forced to accept it and they could swap into their own currency. I don't see anything inherently evil in that. I, I could see them being forced to like pay their taxes and it becomes an issue. Um, it also become an issue for the government with volatility. I don't know that they would want that, but maybe they don't care. At the end of the day, 
I think them adopting it is a good thing. I think that it sets a precedent that it's possible. It, it's the same thing as Tesla putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet, as MicroStrategy putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet. It basically tells the other corporations of the world that, hey, you can do this too if you want to. And maybe you can do it better than us, right? Like maybe you're not market buying a billion dollars at a time like Sailor does. Um, so does Bitcoin fail from here? I highly doubt it. I You would have to really like, I, I think the only way that Bitcoin fails for what it's trying to do, like if we're talking about dollar value fail, like, okay, but as far as technology is concerned, Bitcoin is doing everything it set out to do. It is, it is what it set out to be. And it's not going to fail at that because it can't, the, the way that software works and evolves, like, let's say Bitcoin gets hacked, the, the chain gets hacked, right? So quantum computing comes out, we crack SHA-256 and everybody's wallets get compromised. All we're gonna do is reorg the chain and make it um, quantum resistant. And you just fork it. E everything in software is reversible if we want it to be. And the beauty of this is that we get to decide. You think the miners are gonna mine a chain where everybody lost all their money? Fuck no, that's called BSV and it failed. Like, it, it just doesn't happen. So the whole entire uh, idea of Bitcoin failing at this point is built around this idea that the government will come in and control it and force us not to use it. The same idea of like the COVID crisis and what you're seeing happen right now I think that if the government overreached, especially in America like that, you would have a massive civil war. Like you would have a lot of people very upset. And because of the values that this nation was founded on, I have a hard time believing that they would ever ban it. Now, what they would do is similar to what they did when they took gold away from us, where you would basically get a USA Bitcoin and they would force you to give them your Bitcoin and they would give you a paper Bitcoin that is the U.S. version of it, which if I was the government, that's what I would do if I wanted to still have power and put Bitcoin on my balance sheet. But that's also like Skynet level apocalypse and definitely not happening anytime soon because the people in power are so old and don't understand anything. Um, so, yeah, those are just apocalypses. I think ultimately the, the paradigm we exist in, Bitcoin already succeeded. The fact that a government is putting it on their balance sheet is more than enough testament to that. The fact that another one's banning it is another testament to it. Now it's just a matter of time and time and adoption and we'll see what the value looks like in a decade. I would have a very hard time believing it's anything less than 30K. Very hard time. Well, I think you brought up a lot of great points. I hope people learned a lot. Um, I think well, thank you for having me. You've answered a lot of really great questions that I, I don't know. I've seen a lot of, of sort, sort of these questions and concerns uh, rise up and you have a very eloquent way of explaining. So thanks so much for coming on. And I, where can people find you in Tantra? Um, I never and your dog. <laughs> I know. Yeah, let me grab him really quick. He's upset. He just oh, we're all here me. for the dog. <laughs> 
For the I people know. just listening, there is the cutest puppy. <laughs> he looks like a little oh, bear. He's so His small. His name's Otto, middle name Matic. So it's automatic. <laughs> he's so tiny. <laughs> he's actually looking at himself. I think he's a narcissist. <laughs> he's so limp, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Um, so I don't really go on Twitter, but you can find me on Twitter. My name is Russell LaCour. Um, I'm the CEO, CTO, CIO. I have a lot Everything. Of titles <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we have a big team, so it's not just me. There's like 15 people on the team now, but um, of Tantra Labs, Allison does amazing research and work with us. We're uh, an algorithmic prop desk that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum debt and trades it. So we allow people to denominate in Bitcoin or Ethereum. We're also starting two new funds, so actually a DeFi fund where we'll be investing in decentralized finance more openly and taking cash contributions instead of just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And um, a Delta Neutral fund that's strictly focused on yield. So uh, you can find me online anywhere there and I look forward to reaching out and talking to every one of you. A lot of what we try to do is establish relationships with the people that invest in us and educate people. So thank you for having me on and asking these questions today. It was fun. I always love hearing your takes on everything. I, I'm glad that someone in the space has come in with real knowledge of inflation to enlighten all of us <laughs> through our anarchist ways. Whether or not I've wanted to, I've become the inflation lady. So, <laughs> but <laughs> thanks so much again for coming on. And um, yeah, everybody should definitely check you out on uh, Twitter, Medium, all the platforms because you got a lot of good things to say. <laughs> Thank you.